Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today, I am excited to feature another episode in our series here on the Commune Podcast called Ask Dr. G. We are in consistent receipt of fascinating questions from our Commune community regarding health, and I cannot imagine anyone better to answer these inquiries than my friend, Dr. Sarah Gottfried. So Sarah has been kind enough to lend her experience and knowledge here on the show to answering these questions. Sarah is a Harvard-educated, board-certified gynecologist, physician, and scientist. She received the moniker of Dr. G from the Philadelphia 76ers, for whom she health coaches. She has led commune courses on the topics of perimenopause and menopause, and happily we seem to be successful in luring her up to commune Topanga on a regular basis where she is leading retreats. So you can be part of the conversation and submit your questions at onecommune.com slash G. And to learn even more from Dr. G, you can watch her free commune masterclass, Women, Food, and Hormones at onecommune.com slash menopause. And we are so grateful uh, to those of you who write us reviews on Apple Podcasts that we created a special offer just for you, 30 days of free commune membership. That's all access for a whole month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review to receive your free all access for 30 days. Note that if you're on a laptop, you'll need to click listen on Apple Podcasts to open the app. And while you're there, make sure you're subscribed. Okay, in today's episode, Dr. G and I discuss PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. PCOS is the most common hormonal disorder in females of reproductive age and one of the primary causes of infertility. Dr. G is here to help us understand some of the potential origins as well as the available treatments, including four effective lifestyle changes that she recommends to address it. Without further delay, I present to you, Dr. Sarah Gottfried. Sarah Gottfried, we meet again. Hello, Jeff Grasno. It's just a delight to be here with you, as always. Um, today, we are fielding a question that seems to be coming up more and more in our community related to PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. So a little bit of a couple of data points here. So PCOS is, affects an estimated 10% of reproductive age women. That's 5 million women in the United States approximately. And up to 70% of affected women are undiagnosed. So it really impacts a tremendous amount of people and they don't know it. And it appears that PCOS is the most common cause of anovulation and a leading cause of infertility. So help us understand what is PCOS? PCOS is a syndrome. And as you may know, Jeff, with other syndromes, 
there's not one cause. Right. It tends to be multifactorial, tends to be that there's what we call phenotypic um, heterogeneity. So, you know, there's people who are thin and lean who have PCOS. There are women who are overweight and obese who have PCOS. We don't know truly the cause, but we've got a lot of ideas based on the phenotype, based on what we see with people who struggle with PCOS. And I appreciate the stats that she shared at the beginning, because I think this point about 70% being undiagnosed is critical. And so I feel like that is a sacred opportunity and invitation for podcasts like this so that we can spread the word and really generate conversations around why your period is coming mm -hmm. less often than it used to. Maybe it's happening every two months or you're skipping and you go three months in between. And is that one of the primary presentations? Is, That's one of the yeah. primary presentations. So there's a, there's a constellation of symptoms and you might have one or more of these. Typically you need at least two to meet criteria. There's a few different criteria out there like Rotterdam and a few others. But basically what's known as oligo ovulation, oligomenorrhea, and that just means you're not getting a cycle every 28 days. So it could be every 36 days and then 48 days and so forth. Typically, there's also signs of androgen excess. So androgen is the, it's the growth and repair family of hormones that includes testosterone, it includes DHEA. And when you have excess testosterone, that can lead to acne, can lead to rogue hairs like on your chin, around your breasts, and places that you don't want it. Mm -hmm. And it can lead to other symptoms of um, just having too much testosterone coursing through your body. Mm -hmm. The third thing that we can see, the third factor is cysts on the ovaries. So this is where the name comes from, which in some ways is kind of unfortunate because you don't have to have an ultrasound diagnosis. But right. on ultrasound, what we're looking for is uh, a pattern that's called the string of pearls. And that's when there's these small little follicles around the surface of the ovary that are just kind of sitting there. They're about a centimeter in size. And it looks like you've got your grandmother's pearl necklace sitting there in your ovary. Hmm. So we can see that on ultrasound. And that is characteristic of someone with PCOS. That's not where you want your heirlooms. You don't want your heirlooms there, for <laughs> no, sure. No. But one other point you made, you know, you said that this is one of the leading causes of infertility. Absolutely mm. true. But what I want women to also understand is that this, this is something that affects you throughout the life cycle. So beginning at puberty, you know, the women who don't have a menstrual cycle every single month, we want to be thinking is there an issue, for instance, with insulin resistance that's happening in adolescence that we need mm -hmm. to address now so that this person doesn't then struggle with fertility when they're in their 20s and 30s and they want to have a baby? And then most important, the number one cause of death in the U.S. is cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. The main driver of cardiovascular disease with women with PCOS is the high testosterone levels. That's the biomarker that we worry about the most. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people think, oh yeah, I had PCOS. You know, I had trouble getting pregnant. I took metformin, it helped me ovulate, and then I got pregnant. Or I took Clomid and that helped me get pregnant. 
I'm done with that PCOS story. No, it continues. So once you go through menopause, you want to be thinking, oh, this is an atypical risk factor for cardiometabolic disease as you get older. It needs to be mm. tracked. Mm. So let's say, I mean, most women aren't necessarily going in to get an ultrasound willy-nilly. So, um, so symptoms like you, like you mentioned, presentation of acne, or maybe facial hair or other places that you don't want hair, that would be sort of the first potential indication that you might have. And I mean, obviously there's this, there's a whole psychological element to that, right? Because for younger women, particularly, there's a lot of shame and guilt yes. associated with acne, particularly like we've talked about, I've t teenage daughters. Um, so, how, it, how would a woman, how, how, do, how do you get diagnosed essentially with PCOS if you're not getting an ultrasound and seeing the pearl necklace there? So you need to go see a clinician who's experienced yeah. with diagnosing polycystic ovary syndrome. And so pretty much any board certified gynecologist is going to be experienced at this. It doesn't require, you know, advanced training. It's really bread and butter uh, work that a gynecologist performs. Mm -hmm. I think the, the question is the index of suspicion. So as someone who thinks a lot about HealthSpan and thinks a lot about men and women and some of these levers that we can pull to make our quality of life fabulous for as long as possible, I think PCOS is one of those things that really robs us of HealthSpan. So with that in mind, I've got a high index of suspicion. So you mentioned that based on the best epidemiology. We think about 10% of women are affected. But I can tell you in conversations, dinner conversations with friends of mine who are endocrinologists, we think it's much more common. Hmm. We know that metabolic dysfunction is becoming more and more prevalent, especially in the United States. We think that it may be more like 10 to 30% of US women have some form of polycystic ovary syndrome. Wow. So we've That's, got we've got this rising problem yeah. of insulin resistance and obesity and overweight. Yeah. Now I've heard different theories posited that insulin and hyperinsulinemia inhibits aromatase, a particular enzyme that is useful in converting testosterone to estrogen. It might play some sort of role in, in high levels of testosterone. But as you say, PCOS seems to be characterized by high levels of testosterone, but not necessarily low levels of estrogen. Is that right? That's right. I think of three different hormones involved, maybe four, with PCOS. So the focus tends to be on the androgens mm -hmm. and looking almost exclusively at testosterone. But there's a bigger story here. And that is if you've got elevated testosterone levels, which is actually very similar to the metabolic dysfunction we see in men who have low testosterone. Right. So they're akin, yeah, which curious. we'll get to in, yeah, yeah. In, maybe in a moment. Yeah. But there's also, you know, as someone who pays a lot of attention to hormones, I'm thinking of the role of insulin, the role of testosterone, how the most people with PCOS also have estrogen dominance. So they tend to have a higher level of estradiol overall. They're not ovulating regularly. They're not having that monthly menstrual cycle. And because they're not ovulating, they have low progesterone levels. So it's not just a testosterone problem. And then just to bring in one other hormone, that's cortisol. So we know there's a lot of 
stress dysregulation and problems with the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which controls cortisol, which is really at the top of the hierarchy in terms of hormones. Yeah. Yeah. And cortisol can trigger elevated blood glucose, which then is yes. triggering additional insulin. It's like a vicious cycle. Yeah. Um, and of course, we were designed, that that was an adaptive design because <laughs> cortisol was very, very useful. You want more blood glucose when you're being chased by an ungulate or something. You know, you want that energy fuel available for your muscles but you don't want it chronically every day of the week. That's right. Um, so you want to you want to spike your cortisol maybe once a quarter. Mm -hmm. Not every day. Yeah. Um so how do you treat PCOS? So I'm going to give you the conventional treatment which is what I was taught. Yeah. So we were taught to ask a woman a pretty simple question. So say I've got a 32-year-old who meets criteria for polycystic ovary syndrome. You ask do you want to get pregnant? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, then we typically give them metformin if they're not ovulating because that is an insulin sensitizer, helps with this whole cascade, reduces testosterone levels, leads to ovulation in women with polycystic ovary syndrome. If the answer is no, we typically would give them a birth control pill. And we've talked before about some of the effects of the birth control pill, so I'm not a huge fan of that. Mm -hmm. I think women need a lot more choices, which is something that we do in integrative and functional medicine. We give women a lot more choices to address the root cause. So birth control pill or metformin, what I would prefer is that we focus first on lifestyle changes. Yeah. Hey, it's Jeff. And when it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder and reach farther and go that extra mile. Well, this relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed recovery, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, your DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance for the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist right there in your pocket. If you're interested in this innovative service, I've got great news for Commune listeners. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Dr. G. That's insidetracker.com forward slash DRG. So give me three or four lifestyle changes that you would recommend to address PCOS. So number one is to reduce refined carbohydrates. 
So I'm a big fan of using a modified clean ketogenic diet in women with PCOS for a few reasons. Number one, we know that when you reduce carbohydrates, it can lower testosterone significantly inside of seven days. Seven mm. days. Wow. So that can really change those downstream symptoms, the rogue hairs, the acne, etc. So I'm a big fan of changing the food plan. If they're up to it, I'll do a clean ketogenic diet. If they're not up for it, we'll just start to modify carbohydrates and do that slowly. And we know that even a 5 to 10% change in body weight can hugely change the biomarkers associated with um, PCOS, and, you know, blood testing is mostly what I'm talking about here. Mm -hmm. So I also like in, in women who have acne, I like to cut out dairy and cut out gluten because that is a way of reducing inflammation. We know that inflammation is such an important driver of acne. And then I like to have stress modification as a big part of the lifestyle treatment since there's so much stress dysregulation in women with PCOS. There's a few other supplements, things like inositol, um, vitamin D. Uh, there's a, a number of insulin sensitizers like berberine. Mm -hmm. In fact, we talk about this in one of the courses that's coming up. Okay. So this, these are some of the supplements that I recommend, but I always have a food first philosophy where I want to start with food and then we want to layer on the supplements once you have a foundational level with food. Okay. So... We talked a little bit about how the prevalence of testosterone in women can lead to the development of these unwanted secondary sexual male characteristics like acne and rogue hairs, et cetera. Let's flip the script a tiny bit and talk about men. Uh, I'm 52. And one thing I dread is, is the ghastly development of man boobs. Yes, oh, God, no. is it on the horizon for me? Um, I've done what I can to address them in the, in the short term. Um, but logically, this would um, suggest a more a, a low testosterone and high higher estrogen rate in men for curiously some of the same upstream reasons that women develop PCOS. So it's it's a little bit of a brain twister. So help us kind of untangle that for a moment. Yeah, there's even a paper that talks about the similarity between PCOS and low testosterone syndrome in men. Mm -hmm. So from a metabolic perspective, they're very similar. Mm -hmm. So both are connected to insulin resistance. Both are related to the development of adiposity. Both draw from overnutrition and eating too much sugar. And then the downstream consequence is low T in men, high T in women. So how do we unpack this? What we know, if we just talk about man boobs for a moment, we know that that tends to be estrogen that is stimulating the fat tissue around the male breast. And so we think that in men, this is related to aromatase being upregulated, mm -hmm. usually by inflammation, yeah. so that testosterone is being overconverted to estradiol. So what I see in a lot of my male patients who've got elevated estrogen levels is that they, they can have a little more fat tissue around the, the breasts. I have an yeah. NBA player who had an elevated estradiol, and I remember I was explaining this estradiol level to him. He was getting worked on manually um, in a room with a lot of the other players, and I was trying to like whisper it or keep it confidential, and he shouts out, Dr. G, is that why my voice is like this? 
<laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. He drank, he drank too much alcohol. So oh. I had to get him to stop being Dennis Rodman uh-huh. and to party a little bit less and, you know, switch out that alcohol for some other things too. Cause he was doing it at the end of a game, you know, just to try to relax right. and the alcohol can raise your estradiol level and lead to this problem of excess estradiol and man yeah. boobs. Yeah. I mean, I think what we've, often think of sort of the large alpha male, you know, who's a beer drinker and, you know, kind of rumbling around. But it turns out that those big alpha males actually have elite low, often have low testosterone and more um, risk at developing man boobs, et cetera, but probably even more serious than the man boobs, although no one likes to have man boobs, I suppose. But it's like what you said, these kind of hypertrophic, adipocytes that are like spilling fat into your bloodstream and inflammatory cytokines and adipokines and all of these things that can lead to awful downstream impacts, potentially worse than the the vanity issue. That's right. So it's, it's vanity, but it's really this underlying issue of increased visceral fat. And that visceral fat is not a vanity issue. It is a it's, it's this cocktail that's being brewed of massive inflammation that slows down the um, your health span. So it robs you of really healthy years. It increases your risk of chronic disease, you know, the high blood pressure, the accelerated aging, cancer, and so forth, yeah. cardiovascular disease. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes we come to a similar and I would call optimistic conclusion around some of these things like PCOS or man boobs um, is that, you know, we do have a good deal of agency uh, around the development of these conditions and they tend to be lifestyle oriented specifically, um, you know, as it pertains to our metabolic function. That's right. And I want to call out something here because one of the things I've noticed in the time that I've known you is that you started to wear a continuous glucose monitor. Mm-hmm. You completely changed yeah. your glucose levels. I haven't been tracking your insulin, although I'd like to. I'd love you to. <laughs> okay, <laughs> That's about done. as intimate as we can get, Perfect. given the circumstances. <laughs> but you've really changed the, you know, the insulin resistance. When your cells become numb to insulin, you and I both had prediabetes, yeah. where our cells were just, they were like, huh? insulin's at the door, knocking at the door, trying to get glucose into the cell. And our bodies were not responding in a normal way. And so we use lifestyle, mostly the way that we eat to change our glucose curves, to change our insulin, which is the control of glucose. And that really is probably the most effective thing to reduce the risk of PCOS, although not all women with PCOS have insulin resistance. And also to prevent the visceral fat and the man boobs. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to add on to that. For the first time in my life, I've gotten more into resistance training. Yes. And I know that you have too. Yes. And for me, you know, outside of like, yeah, again, it's the opposite of man boobs. You can like look good. So there's a vanity component of it. Sure. But really muscle is the biggest glucose sink. So as I have found to develop more muscles, I have an easier time regulating my blood sugar levels. Yes. And and that actually gives me more elasticity in my diet where I can actually go out and like, 
let loose here and there and not be neurotic around my diet all the time um, because I've got other means of managing uh, my glucose and upstream from there, my insulin. Huge point. The way I think of this is inputs and outputs. So your input is related to your food. Your output is related to how you're exercising. And what I've really learned in terms of cardiometabolic function is that you you should be spending about 50% of your time that you're working out with heavy lifting. Yeah. The other half with cardio. That's debatable, but I think from the literature, that's really the way that you get to the best cardiometabolic health. So yes, you want to spike your glucose less with the food that you're eating, but then you want to soak it up with the exercise that you're doing. And then, of course, there's the issue of stress and how much stress you have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope to get into another episode uh, where we dive deep into exercise and what is the right amount of exercise, because this is a, a hotly debated issue and there's all sorts of interesting clinical study on it. So anything else that you'd like to add on this particular episode of Ask Sarah, Ask Dr. G. Uh, well, I would say maybe as a final note, care about your insulin. So one of the things that we know is that insulin changes somewhere around 10 to 14 years before glucose changes. Yeah. So looking at glucose is kind of a downstream effect. Like it's really kind of late to the party. So I want to leave our listeners with a fascination with insulin. Measure your insulin. Measure your fasting insulin. It's a really easy test to do. You can ask your clinician for it. You can even do direct-to-consumer testing to look at insulin. Hmm. Even postprandial insulin starts to change sooner than fasting insulin. So know what your insulin is. Mm -hmm. There's no, at, at this juncture in time, there's no simple sensor disc that I think you can slap on your triceps to measure Not yet. insulin. I hope that would that's coming. Um, typically, insulin hasn't been as easy to measure as glucose because it's like a small little peptide hormone that's thing, right? right? Um, but I agree. It's 100%. It's upstream because you might have a very... Um, regulated blood glucose level, you might be having fasting glucose at like 85 or 90 and feel like you're in the clear, but that's because you're producing so much more insulin. That's right. Your insulin's working too hard. Yeah. So we don't want the insulin to work too hard. We want to make the job easier for insulin. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is a personal journey for me. I know for you too. So this is uh, to be continued. Thank you so much for listening to our new Ask Dr. G series. As I mentioned, we have a special offer for those of you who review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a huge difference. So by writing a review, you can receive all access to the Commune course platform, which features over 130 courses on health and wellness for an entire month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review to receive your free all access for 30 days. Note that if you're on a laptop, you'll need to click listen on Apple Podcasts to open the app. And while you're there, make sure that you are subscribed. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with questions, suggestions, criticism, preferably of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. 
Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks who make this show possible week over week over week, including Jacob Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.